All right, good to see everybody here this morning here at Community for uh, our ABF time together. I'm so glad you're here, and uh, uh, you know, it only takes missing one Sunday to really, I think, begin to appreciate what we have and the blessings of God's Word and the blessings of the fellowship that we have one with another. So I'm thankful you're here, and I'm thankful to be here, and uh, let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you, Lord, that in contrast to a lot of what we were <clears throat> remember from last weekend, beautiful sunshine outside today, it cheers our spirits, and uh, we confess, Lord, that that's sometimes a, an infirmity of our flesh, that dreary days drag us down and days like today cheer us, but uh, we're just grateful that we can depend on you for the inner joy and the inner cheer that we need, and we pray that as we look into your word today, you'll suit a blessing for each of us. Thank you for each one who had sufficient health and strength to be here for the morning uh, time here now, and just pray, Father, you'd open our understanding. We just pray that as we uh, come to God's word, that you will quiet our hearts. I pray that you would just give me utterance this morning, Lord, and, and help me to have wisdom concerning those things to say when there are so many things that could be said. I just pray that I will have exactly the thoughts and the message that you would have for your people today, and also, Lord, that then in the, in the hour to follow, you will bless us, give us a a wonderful time of worship here in, in God's house today. We'll thank you in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Peter chapter number 2. We have made it to chapter 2. By the way, I just might mention, you always get nervous when you're the teacher and you miss a Sunday that you weren't planning to miss. But um, as I understand things, next Sunday is a fifth Sunday. We would normally be thinking of something different with uh, ABF, but I think the plan at this point is just to have our normal classes as normal, so we'll get the Sunday back, but still have a challenge to try to finish everything in First Peter. It would have been much more had we, had we lost that Sunday. Let's turn to First Peter chapter 2. I hope you have today's handout. Um, I do appreciate someone scurrying down to the office early <clears throat> and getting them for me, and they are out there, so if you need that. Also, if there's one from a prior week that you would like to have and don't have, um, I believe Pastor Andrew keeps some of the leftovers, for a time at least, out there on that credenza in the foyer. Let me read from verse number 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning, and this will be uh, the subject matter for our lesson today. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's take a look just by way of introduction and remember that what we're talking about in the book of 1 Peter is the subject of suffering. But I've tried to take it a step beyond that so that we have a message to take away, and that is Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. If we get a little bit of a chance, right at the end of the lesson today, I have several verses for you that go to this theme of sufficiency where I want to develop it just a little bit more from some other uh, verses in Scripture. But I think sometimes it's always good to be reminded of the roadmap. It's nice to know what we're doing right now. It's nice to know how you're getting somewhere, but it's also nice to know where you're going. I have a bad habit. I, this is a confession of mine. If I don't have to pay attention to how I'm getting somewhere, I don't. If I'm not driving, if I don't have to know it, if my, my wife is, a, is an incredible co-pilot and she looks up all this stuff, turn right up here or whatever, if I don't have her with me, I put on Apple Maps and it tells me what to do. And for the most part, that's pretty reliable. But I don't know whether that's just being lazy or what. If I have to do it myself, then I learn it. So yesterday we were coming home from one of the places over on Wade Hampton, and, and my wife said, turn here. And I said, okay, do you know that way? And she said, I, I think so. And she said, do you want me to be quiet or not? So I said, well, let's try it without. Let's see if I can figure this out. And you know, we're here this morning, so we did make it home. But anyway, when you look at this, so here's where we're going. Christ is our sufficiency in suffering, and we want to see this as we look at three key thoughts in the book. His salvation sustains us. This is the section that we're in right now, chapter 1, verse 1, down through chapter 2, verse 10. We're going to be moving shortly. Next week, God willing, his example guides us, which is the bulk. You can see chapter 2, 11 through 4, 19. And then his humility inspires us. All of this developing this idea of Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. Now, we've done a couple things so far. So what have we done so far in this first section? How is it that his, his um, salvation sustains us? First of all, it does so because it gives us a living hope. <clears throat> and it affords us a living hope. It also affects a new birth. And today we're at the third part of this which is Christian salvation sustains us by giving us a Savior to look to. And I want you to just to stop and think about that for a moment, because everybody's looking somewhere. We have to, because in going through life, we find ourselves confronted with all sorts of discouragements, difficulties, trials, problems. To what are we looking? And are we finding sufficiency in what it is that we are looking towards? And the point of today, and what I would like you to try to take away if you don't get anything else, is this, that is, is as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are uplifted by his sacrifice. You're going to notice that this passage, maybe you did when we read it a moment ago, is extremely Christological. That is to say, this has tons and tons and tons about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a very practical point in that, see, folks, because as our attention is focused on him, that's uplifting. And I, I want you to, I think I can make this point if I give you a verse from the Psalms without us having to turn to it. I just want to quote a phrase from Psalm 61 and verse 2. 
And it says this, when my heart is overwhelmed. I'm just going to stop right there for a moment. Do you ever find that? I mean, a lot, right? I mean, if we're honest, a lot. We find that a lot. But the psalmist continues, when my heart is overwhelmed, he said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And it's really a wonderful thing, folks, as Christians, when we, when we come to the realization that we need something outside of ourselves. We're not sufficient. When you look down, you become discouraged. When you look around, you become distracted. And there is one thing that's unfailing, though. There is one thing that we can look to and always draw sufficiency, always draw strength, always draw inspiration, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope I can do some small job of pointing us to him today with what's here. And we're going to do that, first of all, by concentrating on his sacrifice for us. I don't know of, a, of another thing that would be more uh, alluring, that would be more drawing to us than to be reminded when we read our Bibles and when we come to church, of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. And as always, though, I want to say something, and you'll see this pattern in 1 Peter. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before. There's a correlation, I think, or, or at least a, a, there is a lot of parallel between how Paul handles all the truths that he teaches in Ephesians and how Peter handles similar truth in 1 Peter. And there's always this idea that we don't get doctrine the Bible is not in the habit. The Lord is not in the habit of just revealing doctrine so that we can be puffed up, because that's what knowledge does, you know. If you don't take it beyond just knowing it, it has a tendency to puff us up. And the Bible is not about that. The Bible certainly is about teaching us and helping us to understand doctrine, but at the same point, there's always a practical reason we're given that truth. And I think a, a perfect illustration of this is prophecy. You know, a lot of people are curious about prophecy. Even people who aren't Christians are curious about prophecy. They want to know what is this, what is this, when is this going to happen, but they don't really have any intention of that having a bearing on their lives. But the Bible is always causing it or desiring it to have a bearing on our lives. He that hath this hope in him, do you know what it says? Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So, we're always given these truths for practical benefit, and that's the same thing here. Well, what are we going to learn about his sacrifice today? First of all, just to be reminded that we really aren't coming into uh, contact with this thought of sacrifice in chapter 2 for the first time. Because back in chapter 1, the last lesson that we had a couple weeks ago, Peter introduced sacrifice to us under an image, a particular image. That image is redemption. And so verse 18 of chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed, and I mentioned last, this is redeemed. Ransom is a perfectly adequate translation. I just like the redeemed because it brings out the doctrinal significance. But <clears throat> knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So what is to ransom? Or what is to redeem? Well, it's to set free. So we're, we're buying back freedom. We're making it possible for someone who does not have freedom to now have freedom. And how is that accomplished? By the payment of a ransom or by the payment of a price. Peter says, you want to talk about prices? 
You can compare all of this world's riches. You can talk about silver and gold. You can talk about the things that this world sets great store by. And nothing compares to the purchase price of our redemption, which is the precious. And that word precious is, a, is, a, is the idea of magnifying value, which is the precious blood of Christ. So already this has been introduced because if you pay out something, have you sacrificed? Lots of times, yes. Lots of times, no. But certainly when you think of Bible sacrifice, an animal was sacrificed, it paid out the ultimate. Christ's sacrifice, he paid the ultimate. And so sacrifice has already come up to us under the image of redemption. But here we have something completely different, completely new. Like a stone deemed unfit, the religious leaders rejected Jesus. So to understand what's going on and, and the imagery that Peter is now using, and by the way, you've noticed we aren't really talking about verses 1 through 3 at this point. I may have time to get back and say a few words. But right now we're coming to verse 4 and following. So I want you to think about a thought, again, that it's not, it's not unique to Peter. Quite interestingly, it's actually an image that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you think about God's building, Jesus did say in Matthew 16 that I will build my what? Church. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, what, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you're not your own? So think of God's holy temple. And maybe an easier way for us to think about that, since, since this is all going to be a spiritual application this morning, let's go back in our, in our mind's eye to the Old Testament where Solomon is building the temple. How many people here have been to Jerusalem? Okay, that's, that's a good number, so you can kind of see this in your mind. Well, you know, you had to quarry those stones. Anytime you were going to build something in Jerusalem, you had to quarry those stones and then bring them there, and that was up. If you've been to Jerusalem and you've seen what's left, where the, the temple wall, the western wall is, and, you know, you can see stones left over from Herod's temple. I mean, there was no joke when... when they said to Jesus, this has been going on 46 years and it still isn't built. When you look at those huge stones and you realize how much those things weighed, well, anyway, let's just think of that in our minds. So you, you're, you're, Solomon's attempting to build the temple. He's got to have stones to build this with. He has a plan that's been given to him by God. So what do we have? We have a building that we're trying to build. We have building materials. And obviously, we're going to have people who are overseeing that building, and they'll have a number of jobs, one of which will be to sign off on the building materials. That might be more important than you realize. And if you think about cut-rate building materials and what happens sometimes with buildings when people cut corners, not good. But you'd be signing off on building materials like big quarried stones. And that's what's going on here. It says here, as you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected. Focus on that word rejected for a moment. Having been disapproved, it says in the original. 
rejected as a perfectly adequate and good translation of this. But the idea, if we were to bring out the perfect passive tense and also the fact that it's a, it's a verb that has the idea of approve, but, but we're going to negate this. Having been disapproved or rejected. So what happened? The builders looked at the stone. And they rejected it. They stamped disapproved. This is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this, and we also know something else. We know that Jesus wasn't exactly caught off guard by this. In fact, he told them this was exactly what they were going to do. So, by the way, let me point out now in verse 6, and then verse 7, and then verse 8, you're going to have quotations, three stone passages from the Old Testament. So the first one is Isaiah 28:16. The second one is Psalm 122, which is the one that we're going to see Jesus using here. That last one that you have in verse 8 is Isaiah 8:14. Three stone passages from the Old Testament. So this is Matthew 21, verse 42. What's going on in that context is Tuesday of the Passion Week, which has been well characterized as a day of controversy. Jesus is having interactions with these religious leaders, the people that are going to sign off on the materials, the rulers, the leaders. And he says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? This is the second parable he tells. It's at the end of it as he makes the application. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. A couple things going on here. So we've got a stone rejected, but now this rejected stone has become the corner stone, which is a crucial stone in the building. Not that they all aren't, but this is particularly because you're going to get everything level, square, and all that. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here's something interesting. You don't see that last phrase here in 1 Peter 2. And the reason for it is, is Peter just quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, but when Jesus uses this, he adds verse 23, which is the statement, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't you just love this? I mean, the Lord Jesus is basically saying, you know what, I know precisely what your mindset is, I know precisely what's going to happen. None of this catches God off guard. And I kind of feel sorry sometimes when I guess in less mature days, perhaps some of us have had the idea of, well, you know, Jesus got to Jerusalem, they rejected him, so God had to go to plan B. No, no, that God doesn't have plan B. Did you know that? God never has plan B. God only has plan A. And when Jesus went to Jerusalem and was rejected, that was plan A. But there's a significance to this word rejected, and this is what I, I want us to see, because it brings us back to the idea of sacrifice again. Jesus also used the word rejected to refer to his sacrifice. I think I have these verses here for you. So here's Mark 8:31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Same word, but you see how it ties in with his suffering? 
his sacrifice, and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed after three days, rise again. Of course, we all know Isaiah 53, right? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Today it's different. God has done a work of grace in our hearts. We esteem him highly in love for his work's sake. He was despised and rejected. I want you to think back over the course of your life. You might be older, you might be younger. But we can all remember times when we have felt rejected. And I think that people can be cruel, very cruel. And unfortunately, <clears throat> sometimes young people can be extraordinarily cruel. And some of the first contexts in which perhaps we remember feeling rejected by people was in school. When for whatever reason we so aspired to be a part of the group and so aspired to be accepted by our friends, quote unquote, and peers, only to feel rejected by them and not part of the group. You know, that involves a certain suffering that's not physical necessarily, at least not in the beginning. It's a mental anguish, but it's a form of suffering. And rejection is cruel. Rejection is difficult. It's one of the things, though, that we have to contend with in a fallen world. Jesus did this in the ultimate sense, on our behalf. And why did he do this? Well, he did this because now he makes us, as a result of his sacrifice, he is able to make us part of this holy temple, part of this holy edifice. We are living stones. He is a living stone. So look, this is why I said the applications of this are all spiritual. Verse number four, as you come to him, a living stone. Pictures Jesus as a living stone, not an inanimate dead stone, but a, <clears throat> a living stone. Having been disapproved by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, this is an illustration he uses, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ, and then he quotes these passages. Let's look at some of these verses to see how these, Paul is using the same ideas. Help us a little bit, I think, come to a, a better grasp of this. So in Ephesians 2, 11 and through 13, therefore remember Paul says now that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, because it's easy to forget. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is back to sacrifice again. 
And so, now he says, we are fellow citizens, as this is Paul's terminology, fellow citizens with the saints, and a part of the building of which Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And here's the conclusion of that passage, or down later in the passage in Ephesians, to, to, to see this parallel again with how Paul puts this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. What was Peter saying about being strangers? Didn't we already encounter that thought? Aren't we going to encounter that again? Chapter 2, verse 13. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. But you're no longer strangers from the fellow citizens, the saints, and the household of God. But he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the prophet, the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into an holy temple in the Lord. So, when we think about Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There's something about knowing that Christians undergoing persecution, like Peter's audience, have a Savior to look to. To know that we're simply following the path that Jesus trod. In fact, I'm going to read a passage that I don't have there for you on the screen, but you can write this down if you find it of any help. John 15 It's not like Jesus didn't prepare his disciples for this. Verse 18 of chapter 15, this is the the upper room discourse where he's attempting to uh, prepare his disciples for his soon departure. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's something a whole lot more helpful about looking to him than there is to looking down or looking around which is just sort of discouraging. I'll tell you a little story. It meant a lot to me over the years. I first encountered it a number of years ago. <clears throat> but I, most people, I think, in the audience this morning would be familiar with G. Campbell Morgan, British preacher. Well, did you know that when Morgan went before the council, or however we would want to call this as part of his ordination, you know, you generally have to preach a sermon. And so he preached the sermon. And they disapproved him. They rejected him. He was so discouraged. So, so discouraged. And he wrote to his father about it. And this is, folks, this is what fathers are for. His father wrote back to him and said, rejected on earth approved in heaven. And it was what he needed. Obviously, he went on to overcome that initial rejection. Jesus was rejected on earth. 
but he has the approval that is way beyond anything that the men and courts of earth have anything to do with. Rejected by men, verse 4 says, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We may face some of that same rejection in this world, but not without looking to him, not without knowing that we're simply following the path that our Savior trod. Now, before we leave this, and we do have to sort of hasten now, but uh, there are a couple of practical things, and it, I apologize again that there's not time to say what, you, what these, these verses, it's not really time to totally do them justice. <clears throat> but there are a couple of important things not to miss. And so if you're asking yourself, okay, all this theology, how does this exactly happen? How, how do we become incorporated into the church? How do we, how do we become a part of God's holy temple? Uh, you said a minute ago that it had to do with Christ's sacrifice, and that's the basis upon which God can accept us and not stamp us with disapproved. How does that happen? Well, you know, if you just read carefully, it tells us, and it tells us in very practical terms. So, first of all, verse 4, as you come to him. Have you come to Jesus with a cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? We come to him. That's the human side. We come to him. Then down in verse number 6, when we come, what happens? Or as it stands in Scripture, behold, this is verse 6, I lay, am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes. Peter's already told us about the divine side of, of this in chapter 1. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come... Just as God has planned, we come and we believe. And we become a part. We become accepted in the beloved. We become a part of God's holy temple. But there's another thing just to be sure that you... Somebody ever asks you about the priesthood of the believer. And there's lots of passages that you can go to, but here's a key, a key one for us. You notice all this language that he, Exodus 19, we're not turning there, but he drafts all of this language <clears throat> from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The King James says a peculiar people, so you might remember that phrase. And all of that's drawn from Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. It's all brought over to us as believers now as we become incorporated into this spiritual building. And Ephesians reveals that mystery that it wasn't just to be Jews, that it was God's plan for it to always include Gentiles. Now we're all a part of that when in the past we were not. Now the priesthood of the believer is a precious truth. It's a Baptist distinctive. It's a doctrine of the Reformation. What's it tell us? It tells us don't need a priest. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Don't need a priest. Don't need a confessional. Good thing I'd spend all my time going there. 
Don't need a special booth with a guy on one side and a cloth in between. Just come to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Need to move. As I said before, you know, there's always practical stuff that's designed to come out from this. Let me show you how this has already been here and we just haven't talked about it. Go back to chapter 1, verse 13. So he unfolds this whole big thing about this living hope and all of the theology that we barely graze the surface of in chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, and then 1 through 12. And then the first thing he says in verse number 13 is, therefore. And then he starts talking about being holy. So whenever you see a therefore, always good to ask yourself what the therefore is there for. And now we come to chapter 2, and it's not quite as obvious in the ESV, but it's the first word of verse 1 of chapter 2, so. Similar word, same idea. It's a transition word to make application, to help us to understand, okay, he wants to say something now to us based on that. So one of the things that comes out of this whole idea of the new birth, which he mentions in verse 23 and all of that, as well as earlier in the chapter, he says, now you're newborn babes and you're in the brotherhood. Remember, we talked about this last week and uh, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Verse 22, over in chapter 2, um, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Well, in the brotherhood, if, you're, if you don't put away malice, and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, you don't make too many points with the brotherhood. Those, are, those types of things are antithetical to fellowship, to loving the brothers. And they're antithetical to the holiness that God talks about. So application is going to come out of this. We don't have time to talk about it all, but one of the obvious and first things is We've been born again. You've been taught this probably since cradle roll, that if you don't have some spiritual hunger, you make a profession or somebody says, do this, do that. Oh, I'm saved now. You don't have any interest in spiritual things. You don't have any interest in church. You don't have any interest in the Bible. Problems. Got a, got a profession that's a little shaky, a little suspect. Because if you had a child come into this world and that child wasn't interested in nursing, something's wrong. I mean, Thanksgiving, we went out to see my youngest son in Indiana. And they have two dogs. And so the, the one that's the closer to being puppy age, but I think he's kind of come out of that now. But you know how they just, I mean, these dogs like that, they're just, if I could somehow lay hands on that dog and draw half that energy off there. I mean, they're just whirlwinds of activity. And you put that food down there, and I don't think they worry too much with chewing too well. They, it just disappears. It's just inhaled, and whatever comes out of the bowl and it's on the floor, that's gone too. And he gets the food the next morning or whatever and puts it out there, and the dog just looked at it, 
almost like you could see him shaking his head. Walked away, curled up, got in his bed. He said, he's been doing that. Is that a problem? Some kind of a problem. Got into something out there, ate something somewhere, not good. Went and got a pill that the vet gave him, gave him the pill, and that seemed he bounced back, ate that food. But my point is, if you've had any dealings with animals, you know this. People are not much different. Animal gets off his food, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And same thing here, see? So that, that's one of the practical applications. But now Peter, so Peter's going to make some challenges to us as a result of this. And so when we look to him and we're inspired by his sacrifice, but it also elicits a response, we don't see him as unfit at all. We see him as precious. And you notice Peter keeps on using that word. We won't look at all of those verses, but you have them there in your notes. What is it that we're motivated to? Well, verse 9. And I, I want to come back and touch on this, this idea of the priesthood of the believer for a moment again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own that you may what? What's that word there? Proclaim. We're supposed to be proclaimers. We're supposed to be motivated by what he's done for us, the fact that we were disapproved. And now we've been accepted into God's holy temple and we realize this incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us is supposed to be a motivation and it's supposed to be a practical outworking, it's supposed to be a response that we, we should be glad to want to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're motivated by his mercy, verse 10. <clears throat> Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's elaborate on this a little bit for a moment. Let's see where we are with this. Um, so our calling is that of a royal priesthood. Our function is offering up spiritual sacrifices. As we saw this in verse number 5, what do priests do? They offer sacrifices, right? Did you know that we do that in the New Testament era? Did you? Because we do. We're supposed to. We're a royal priesthood, right? Priests offer sacrifices. So, ooh. That sounds liturgical. That sounds... Well, let's just look at the New Testament, see what we find. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. He mentions proclaiming here as being one of them. But look at this, and praising. Hebrews happens to pick up on this very thought. Interesting book to be picking up on Jewish-related type thoughts. Through him then let us continually offer up. This is, this is written to the New Testament, right? Is this, this is the New Testament in your Bible? So, all right, look what it says. Offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with those who have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Peter talks about proclaiming. Peter talks about praising. The author of the Hebrews talks about offering up the sacrifice of praise. He adds to that the idea of to do good and not neglecting to share with those who have. Paul says it's really the whole enchilada. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And these are Peter's practical applications. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to say something by way of conclusion, so I think we have just time to do this. Um, So in suffering and trial, people look to many things only to find little help. Isn't that true? We have a Savior to look to. And when we do look, because we're looking outside of ourselves and because we're looking to the only one who can really help, guess what? We find a source of sufficiency. Christ is sufficient in suffering. Let's look at these verses. There's a string of these in 2 Corinthians. Watch for the word sufficient. He's talking about the gospel ministry. He says, to one were a fragrance of death from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then asks the question, who's sufficient for that? But he answers it in the next chapter. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We have a Savior to look to. And I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Thomas Brooks, the 17th century Puritan, told a story and made an interesting comment. I want to close here. He spoke of a time during the reign of Henry IV of France when he asked, that is, the king asked the Duke of Alva, if he had observed the great eclipse of the sun that had recently occurred. Here's the Duke's response. No, I have so much to do on earth that I have no leisure to look up into heaven. Brooks's comment on this is for me and you. It is sad to think how heart and time are so taken up with earthly things that we have no leisure to look to Christ and the things that belong to everlasting peace. Christ is our sufficiency. Any comments or questions before we close? Dear Father in heaven, thank you that we have a Savior to look to, and we are unworthy of the least of your favor. For we know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. To will may be present, but how to perform that which is good we don't find. But thank you that in you we find everything we need for life and godliness. So bless us with these thoughts. Just drive away from us anything that was said during this hour that might not have been helpful or useful or honoring to you. And bless us as we go into the next hour. Bless Brother McAllister as he preaches to us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.